0: Welcome to the French History Podcast. My name is Gary Schirhoff. Episode 7. Celts on the Warpath. The Sack of Rome. So before I begin this episode, I would like to thank historian Peter Ellis, whose work on this topic has been invaluable. Normally I try to get quite a few different sources and pull a little bit from each, for each episode in order to get a broad perspective um i did that again with this episode but i have to give credit where credit is due so thank you very much to peter ellis whose work i will be including a link on in the video description all right now let's get to the history today i'm going to be talking about the very first conflict between those Celts who were living in what we now call France, but back then was called Gaul, and their earliest conflict with the Romans. According to the Roman historian Livy, Celts had lived in Italy, north of the Po River, as early as 500 BCE, although in all likelihood they'd been there much longer. The earliest Celts may have migrated from what is now Switzerland, but by 400 BCE, tribes from Gaul dominated the northern Italian region just south of the Alps, aptly named Cisalpine Gaul. Livy recounts a legend that the Gauls became overly populous, at which point a mythic king named Ambicatos, almost assuredly a Latinization of his original name, decreed that his sister's sons, Belavesos and Sigavesos, should take a portion of the population out of Gaul. According to this legend, Sigavesos was given Germany, and Belavesos, the lucky one, was given northern Italy. Legends like these are hard to believe, particularly since Livy was writing in the early 1st century CE. What makes this even more dubious is that it sounds like the myths of Rome's founding, which involves either the two brothers, Romulus and Remus, or Aeneas of Troy, who left his homeland and founded the Eternal City. It may be that this retelling of the origin of the Italian Gauls was the end of a long game of telephone or Chinese whispers, depending on what your elementary school called it, in which a tale is passed down for so long through so many cultures that it loses its original meaning and is reinterpreted in a way that would be familiar to its audience, in this case, Imperial Romans, hence the two brothers leaving their land and founding a new civilization. When the Gauls arrived in northern Italy, they made quick enemies with the Etruscans. The Etruscans were a loose group of city states in the northern half of Italy who shared many cultural and religious elements with the Greeks. By 500 BCE, the Etruscans commanded an empire that stretched from the Po River valley in the north to Campania in the south near modern day Naples. The glory days of the Etruscans came to an end as the Gauls invaded from the north and Rome grew in power in the south. In 474 BCE, a Gallic army defeated an Etruscan army near Ticino while simultaneously a Roman naval force destroyed an Etruscan navy near Cumae. Caught between two rising powers— the Etruscans went into terminal decline. Having forced their way into Italy, the Gauls set about making towns, setting the foundation for the future cities of Trent, Milan, Turin, and Bologna, among others. In 396 BCE, Rome conquered the Etruscan city of Veii making Rome the dominant Italian power south of the Po River. The Etruscan city-states were weakened, but they still had a measure of independence from Rome and engaged in intercity rivalries. While we like to think political squabbles have to do with high-minded things such as trade and border rights, wars have a tendency to break out for truly petty reasons. Around 387 BCE, an aristocrat named Aurens of Clusium accused Lucomo, another aristocrat, of seducing his wife. In response, Aurens did what any sensible man would do. He hired an army of Gauls to pillage his rival's city. Unfortunately for Aurens, When the Gauls arrived at Clusium, they decided that they would rather sack it. Since Rome was the new power in the region, it couldn't help but get involved in this love triangle that had gotten horrendously out of hand. Rome sent three envoys to the Gauls, supposedly to negotiate a peace. However, when these envoys arrived, they assassinated one of the Gallic chiefs outraged, the Gauls continued their assault on Clusium. With things thoroughly getting out of hand, Rome sent an army to deal with the matter. According to ancient records, the army numbered 40,000. However, this seems entirely implausible. The city of Rome at this time had a population of perhaps 100,000, most of which were women and children. For Rome to raise an army of 40,000, that would mean every male from 7 to 70 years old would have had to march out to meet the Gauls, which seems highly unlikely. If we calculate that in any given classical city, one-third to one-half of all males between 18 to 40 were soldiers, and that's a pretty high estimate, or at least could take up arms if need be, This brings the total number of fighting men down to perhaps 20,000. Furthermore, if we assume that a city would never send out more than half of its soldiers to fight in a foreign campaign for fear of invasion, this brings the number down to 10,000. So where did the classical historians get 40,000? Did they just pull it out of their toga? This is a possibility, as numbers are frequently inflated in ancient sources. However, it is possible that this army really numbered 40,000. Let's assume for a moment that Rome fielded 10,000 men. Now, it's possible that Rome's Latin allies met Rome's numbers, bringing the total to 20,000. Ancient sources have a habit of numbering armies not just by how many fighting men there were, but also by how many camp followers there were. In the modern era, we tend to think of militaries as self-sustained units, capable of feeding, clothing, housing, and supplying themselves. But this is a relatively modern notion, as past governments either could not or did not provide for all the expenditures of their soldiers, forcing them to rely on civilian resources. Don't forget that the Fourth Amendment in the United States Constitution forbids the quartering of soldiers in private homes, because as recently as the 1770s, the army of the British Empire depended on civilian assistance to care for its army, even if that assistance wasn't voluntary. Armies often conscripted aid from civilians when marching through foreign-held territory, but this was not possible within their own lands meaning that Roman and Latin civilians would accompany the army and provide essential services in order to make some quick cash. In ancient societies, armies often had camp followers who sold the soldiers food, clothing, weapons, and supplies. Furthermore, adolescent boys could make some money by carrying packs for soldiers. And, of course, where there are thousands of homesick men heading towards possible death, there are promiscuous women accompanying them. Near the end of the Republic and into the Imperial era, Rome's armies professionalized and camp followers were less common, but the Romans of 387 BCE were not the full-fledged legionnaires that we think of today. So back to our numbers. If we estimate that Rome provided 10,000 able-bodied male soldiers, which was then matched by another 10,000 from its Latin allies, This gives us 20,000 soldiers. It is possible that for every soldier there was a camp follower, either a cook, a tailor, a pack boy, or a prostitute, meaning that the total number of the army would be 40,000. While this number might still be a bit high, it is at least within the realm of possibility. But anyway, enough about numbers. Let's get back to Rome quashing this love affair gone wrong. The Roman army was led by Consul Quintus Sulpicius and marched out to meet the Gauls, who were led by a chief named Brenos. When Brenos heard the Romans were marching on them, he made the clever decision to withdraw the siege of Clusium and meet the Romans on a battlefield of his choosing. On July 18, 387 BCE, the Gauls met the Romans on the banks of the river Alia, roughly 10 miles north of Rome. From this point on, I can't do any better than to cite Livy's history of Rome, which describes how the Romans, suddenly set upon by the Gauls and with no time to prepare, were routed. Livy says... The consular tribunes had secured no position for their camp, had constructed no entrenchments behind which to retire, and had shown as much disregard of the gods as of the enemy, for they formed their order of battle without having obtained favorable auspices. They extended their line on either wing to prevent their being outflanked, but even so they could not make their front equal to the enemy's, whilst by thus thinning their line they weakened the center, so that it could hardly keep in touch. For Brennus, the Gaulish chieftain, fearing some ruse in the scanty numbers of the enemy, and thinking that the rising ground was occupied in order that the reserves might attack the flank and rear of the Gauls while their front was engaged with the legions, directed his attack upon the reserves, feeling quite certain that if he drove them from their position, his overwhelming numbers would give him an easy victory on the level ground. So not only fortune, but tactics also were on the side of the barbarians. In the other army, there was nothing to remind one of Romans, either amongst the generals or the private soldiers. They were terrified, and all they thought about was flight, and so utterly had they lost their heads that a far greater number fled to Via, a hostile city, though the Tiber lay in their way, than by the direct road to Rome to their wives and children. For a short time the reserves were protected by their position. In the rest of the army no sooner was the battle shout heard on their flank by those nearest to the reserves and then by those at the other end of the line heard in their rear, then they fled, whole and unhurt, almost before they had seen their untried foe, without any attempt to fight or even to give back the battle shout. None were slain while actually fighting. They were cut down from behind whilst hindering one another's flight in a confused, struggling mass. Along the bank of the Tiber, Whither the whole of the left wing had fled, after throwing away their arms, there was great slaughter. Many who were unable to swim or were hampered by the weight of their cuirasses and other armor were sucked down by the current. The greater number, however, reached VA in safety, yet not only were no troops sent from there to defend the city, but not even was a messenger dispatched to report the defeat to Rome. All the men on the right wing, which had been stationed some distance from the river and nearer to the foot of the hill, made for Rome and took refuge in the citadel without even closing the city gates. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and, six one since that matters, and, what do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. From here, Livy goes on to recount the Gaulish invasion of Rome itself. Livy continues, The Gauls, for their part, were almost dumb with astonishment at so sudden and extraordinary a victory. At first they did not dare to move from the spot, as though puzzled by what had happened. Then they began to fear a surprise. At last they began to despoil the dead, and as their custom is, to pile up the arms in heaps. Finally, as no hostile movement was anywhere visible, they commenced their march and reached Rome shortly before sunset. The cavalry, who had ridden on in front, reported that the gates were not shut. There were no pickets on guard in front of them, no troops on the walls. This second surprise, as extraordinary as the previous one, held them back, and fearing a nocturnal conflict in the streets of an unknown city, they halted and camped between Rome and the Anio. Reconnoitering parties were sent out to examine the circuit of the walls and the other gates, and to ascertain what plans their enemies were forming in their desperate plight. As for the Romans, since the greater number had fled from the field in the direction of Via instead of Rome, it was universally believed that the only survivors were those who had found refuge in Rome, and the mourning for all who were lost, whether living or dead, filled the whole city with the cries of lamentation but the sounds of private grief were stifled by the general terror when it was announced that the enemy were at hand presently the yells and wild war whoops of the squadrons were heard as they rode round the walls all the time until the next day's dawn the citizens were in such a state of suspense that they expected from moment to moment an attack on the city. They expected it first when the enemy approached the walls, for they would have remained at the Alia had not this been their object. Then, just before sunset, they thought the enemy would attack because there was not much daylight left. And then when night was fallen, they imagined that the attack was delayed till then to create all the greater terror. Finally, the approach of the next day deprived them of their senses. The entrance of the enemy's standards within the gates was the dreadful climax to fears that had known no respite. But all through the night and the following day, the citizens afforded an utter contrast to those who had fled in such terror at the Alia. Realizing the hopelessness of attempting any defense of the city with the small numbers that were left, they decided that the men of military age and the able-bodied amongst the senators should, with their wives and children, withdraw into the citadel and the capital, and after getting in stores of arms and provisions, should from the fortified position defend their gods, themselves, and the great name of Rome. If only the citadel and the capital, the abode of gods, if only the senate, the guiding mind of the national policy, if only the men of military age survived the impending ruin of the city, then the loss of the crowd of old men left behind in the city could be easily borne. In any case, they were certain to perish. To reconcile the aged plebeians to their fate, the men who had been consuls and enjoyed triumphs gave out that they would meet their fate side by side with them and not burden the scanty force of fighting men with bodies too weak to carry arms or defend their country. And here Livy recounts a potentially legendary meeting of the older senators with the Gauls. Thus they sought to comfort one another These aged men doomed to death. After all the arrangements that circumstances permitted had been made for the defense of the capital, the old men returned to their respective homes and fully prepared to die awaited the coming of the enemy. Those who had filled offices resolved to meet their fate wearing the insignia of their former rank and honor and distinctions. They put on the splendid dress which they wore when conducting the chariots of the gods or riding in triumph through the city, and thus arrayed, they seated themselves in their ivory chairs in front of their houses. Some writers record that, led by Fabius, the Pontifex Maximus, they recited the solemn formula in which they devoted themselves to death for their country. As the Gauls were refreshed by a night's rest after a battle which had at no point been seriously contested, and as they were not now taking the city by assault or storm, their entrance the next day was not marked by any signs of excitement or anger. Passing the Colline gate, which was standing open, they came to the forum and gazed round at the temples and at the citadel, which alone wore any appearance of war. finally. Livy recounts the meeting of these Gauls marching through the open city with this senatorial class who waited patiently for their death. Livy recounts, they, the Gauls, gazed with feelings of real veneration upon the men who were seated in the porticos of their mansions, not only because of the superhuman magnificence of their apparel and their whole bearing and demeanor, but also because of the majestic expression of their countenances, wearing the very aspect of gods. So they stood, gazing at them as if they were statues, till, as it is asserted, one of the patricians, Papirius, roused the passion of a Gaul who began to stroke his beard, which in those days was universally worn long, by smiting him on the head with his ivory staff. He was the first to be killed. The others were butchered in their chairs. After this slaughter of the magnates, no living being was thenceforth spared. The houses were rifled and then set on fire. End of Livy's History of Rome Truly, it was a terrifying time to be a Roman. The entire city was now open to the besieging Gauls, Save for the Capitoline Hill, which was the main stronghold of the city. The next few days, the Gauls besieged the Capitoline Hill, but the Romans would not surrender for three main reasons. One, they were backed into a corner and knew that surrender meant death, meaning that they fought with all the necessity they could. 2. They were defending the Capitoline Hill, the holiest of holies within Roman religion, which housed the temples of Jupiter and Saturn. 3. The Romans were led by a capable and cunning commander with the greatest name in history, Marcus Manlius. Manlius staved off Brenos attacks long enough for a Roman army from V.A. to arrive outside the city. The fresh Roman army was afraid to engage the Gauls after the last Roman army had been annihilated, and instead the Romans took a defensive position, and when the Gauls sent out parties to forge for food, attacked them. Thus, this turned into a war of attrition on both sides. The new Roman army was starving out the Gauls, just as the Gauls were starving out the defenders on the Capitoline Hill while burning parts of Rome for good measure. With nothing more to gain, the Romans sued for peace. Chieftain Brenos replied that he would leave Rome for 1,000 pounds of gold. With no other option, the Romans agreed, though there remained one final confrontation to play out between the two parties. While the Gauls weighed the gold, a Roman official complained that they were using improper weights In order to cheat the Romans out of more gold. In response to this accusation, Brenos retrieved his sword, placed it on the scale, and proclaimed Woe to the conquered. Then the Gauls left Rome, laid down with a mountain of gold, and returned to northern Italy. From here on, this podcast won't deal with the Cisalpine Gauls as they cease to be a part of French history. While these Gauls originated from Gaul and had ties to their homeland, after hundreds of years they acclimated to Italian lifestyle, creating their own chiefdoms and regional culture. But even though the Cisalpine Gauls drifted apart linguistically, culturally, and politically from the rest of the Gauls, The Romans would nurse a pathological grudge against all Gaelic people for hundreds of years, as they were the only people that had ever sacked the city in its history. It wasn't for another 800 years when the Visigoths sacked Rome in 410 AD that such an event would occur, and not even Hannibal could overtake the eternal city. Because of this, the Gauls occupied a special place in the Roman mind as the wild, savage barbarians that threatened to overthrow glorious civilization if the Romans ever let their guard down. This worldview is more culture myth than reality, but it will lead to drastic consequences down the road. When Rome ascends in the next few hundred years, it will disregard the advanced societies which the Gauls created dismissing the oppida or large trading cities that they had developed and the culture that had grown within, and depict them as savage, woods-dwelling brutes. This stereotyping came to a head when Julius Caesar brutally invaded Gaul and finally got revenge upon the spirit of Brenos. But Caesar is 400 years after this episode, and Rome isn't the only power in the Mediterranean. While Rome expanded through land-based conquest, the Greeks and Phoenicians expanded by colonizing prime coastal locations. In 600 BCE, just as a tribe of Gauls were moving into Italy, a band of Greeks established a city in southern France named Massilia, or as we know it today, Marseille. Next time will focus on the Greeks in southern Gaul and the effects on the Gauls as they created their own maritime empire. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to visit our page and either make a one-time donation or become a Patreon, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for listening.